Buy more, save more with a patio door at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Buy three windows, save $500. Buy six, save $1,000. Buy a dozen, save $2,000 by adding a patio door. But only through April 30th. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Let's get right to it. Yesterday was an election. Uh, about 30% voter turnout, um, it, which which is about what was expected, but at the same time, a little bit disappointing. Uh, let, let's go through the races quickly, and I'll give you everything you need to know. Um, Cavalier Johnson, as expected, beats Bob Donovan, becomes the first elected black mayor of the city of Milwaukee, and that's getting a lot of attention. I, if, you, if you have a sense of irony— <laughs> I hope you were listening to Jane Matinair's newscast because we, we, we tracked down Tom Barrett, who's in Luxembourg, and they say, oh, what do you think about this? And, and Barrett says, well, you know, his first priority has to be dealing with violent crime and all the nutso driving and things like that, which which is, by the way, on the one hand, number it, it's absolutely correct. Number two, I, I, hope, I hope you have a sense of irony because for the last— Oh, I would say three or four years, Tom Barrett, when he was the mayor, had absolutely no plan, no clue, no idea, and and I'm not sure any inclination to deal with the out-of-control violent crime. So Tom Barrett is absolutely correct. Priority number one for Cavalier Johnson as the now elected mayor needs to be dealing with the unacceptable level of violence. I mean, we're, we're on a pace— to, we're on a pace for darn near 300 homicides in the city of Milwaukee. Now, I don't think it's going to get that high, but the, the violence in the city is completely and totally out of control. The car thefts continue to be out of control, the reckless driving, all these things. So <clears throat> it's nice that, that Tom Barrett has finally recognized that violent crime is a huge problem in the city of Milwaukee. It would have been nicer if perhaps he had recognized that two, three, four years ago and started developing some initiatives as opposed to saying, here, I have this whole steaming bucket of hot potatoes here it, it, it's yours now mayor johnson figure out how you're going to deal with it so it, it will be interesting to see where we go from there but cavalier johnson ends up winning this race <clears throat> was not was not a, a loss for bob donovan in the big picture first of all donovan raised a number of issues that i think were important to discuss but secondly one of the things <clears throat> that donovan did by getting in this mayor's race and by winning the primary, at least coming in second, one of the two winning candidates in the primary, what he did was he took up a spot and he stopped some of the crazier candidates from being able to advance. This mayoral election might have been completely different had Marina Dmitrievic been the person who ran second in the primary might have been completely different had Lena Taylor been the person that ran second in the primary. But but by Donovan, as the, the one only conservative candidate, really, that, that came out of that primary, what he did was he had the effect of blocking some of the, the real 
more crazy lefties that were potentially running would have been a much different general election were it not Donovan um, that was there as opposed to, uh, again, Dmitrievich or Taylor, a couple of, of the others. So Donovan, even in losing the race for mayor at the end of the day, he, he won, I think, for a lot of citizens in the city of Milwaukee because he stopped some of the crazier candidates from advancing. And who knows what could have happened if you had a Marina Dmitrieva Cavalier-Johnson race or Alina Taylor Cavalier-Johnson race. So I think Donovan deserves credit for running. It was always going to be an uphill battle. Um, the 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 deck, and I don't say this in a, an election was stolen sort of way, but the deck was always kind of stacked for Cavalier Johnson. He had all the money. It is interesting to me as well that in the mainstream media, you've had a lot of this, I don't know, hand-wringing and pearl-clutching about, hey, the, the Republican Party has been involved in you know helping select and elect school board candidates for these nonpartisan races. Isn't that terrible? And didn't have much conversation about the Democratic Party and the money they put into Cavalier Johnson's campaign for mayor. Just saying— it, it's, it works both ways. Okay, some of the other races of note. The Court of Appeals race for what is District 2, which is essentially the collar counties around uh, Milwaukee, uh, the conservative candidate, Waukesha County Judge Maria Lazar, beats the Tony Evers appointee and, and beats her pretty handily. This is not necessarily a, a surprise. Again, this was another one where some people are wringing their hands and saying, oh, this is, again, it's the role of politics and stuff. No, this is just kind of what goes on nowadays. And Lazar was clearly the more conservative candidate. Here is the one thing that I would say. And matter of fact, I've given this advice to a couple people who are interested in becoming Waukesha County judges, re- replacing Maria Lazar, because she She's, she's a district judge now. She will be resigning her position to, again, take on the new role with the Court of Appeals, which creates a, a vacancy. And it's a vacancy that Tony Evers can appoint. I, I, I've already said this to a couple of people who've considered running and asked my opinion about this or seeking the appointment. This just demonstrates how an Evers appointment in, for example, in Waukesha County is kind of the kiss of, of death. And just like you had Scott Walker judicial appointees who were incredibly qualified, who ran for election and in Milwaukee County and ended up losing only because, in many cases, to much less qualified candidates, only because they had been appointed by Scott Walker. The, the lesson of this, and, and I say this to any lawyer who's thinking of applying for this judgeship, I, I don't care, unless unless you have extremely good conservative bona fides, in which case Tony Evers is probably not going to appoint you, you might want to just sit this one out because pretty much whoever is appointed by Tony Evers is going to have an opponent next April, and if the past is any indication of the future, that opponent is is going to probably win. So my advice to a lot of candidates has been you, you, you don't want this appointment. I understand that that's kind of counterintuitive, but you don't want this appointment. Because coming from Tony Evers, that's going to be baggage that you might not be able to overcome next April when you have to run for re-election. All right, a couple local school board races. The conservative candidates sweep in Menominee Falls. The conservative candidates <clears throat> sweep in, in Waukesha. Uh, mixed results in, in some other areas. The Kenosha County Executive, Samantha Kirkman, conservative. So that's why I say, I mean, good 
good nights for conservatives. You can point to other examples where it didn't necessarily work out as well. But in general, I think it's a trend that is good and positive as you move <clears throat> into the you know midterm elections that are coming up in November. And finally, <laughs> the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors. Now, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know we understand what a clown car act the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors ha- has been. And it, it, it didn't get any better last night. You have a situation where by about 15 votes, a guy named Juan Miguel Martinez ends up getting elected. He was running against former state representative Josh Zepnik, who, who kind of left office in, in disgrace after being accused of this, um, various uh, incidents involving females. So he, he kind of, he, he's, he's out under a cloud. He tried to come back as a county supervisor. He, he loses by about 17 votes to Juan Miguel Martinez, um, whose claim to fame is talking about how he's a proud socialist, how there are four criminals on the face of Mount Rushmore, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, how the Cuban Revolution led by Fidel Castro empowers him and fuels him to keep striving for workers' rights and persons of color, and how 90% of motorcyclists are racist, homophobic, Trump-supporting trash. Okay, this is the guy who got elected to the Milwaukee County Board. So if you thought the Clown Car Act was going to get any better, nope, I just think they took a couple more clowns and shoved them into the back of that car. One of the interesting stories is John Weishton, who is the last remaining county supervisor who voted for all of the things associated with the pension scandal, he got redistricted this year, and, and he end up, ended up losing. There, there's one other county supervisor who is, is still <clears throat> on the board who, in part, you know, voted for some of the things that has really you know, bankrupted, essentially, Milwaukee County over the last 20 years. But Weishin was the last supervisor still hanging on who voted for the whole Megillah. He ends up losing last night in a redistricted race. So, again, it's just amazing to me how he could have hung on for 20 years after that vote, but he did. And that is all you need to know about the election yesterday. What happens now is we move on to the partisan primaries, which are going to be coming up late summer, early fall. And then, of course, the general election next November, where it is going to be interesting to stay, to say the least. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. When will we ever learn? Now, over the the weekend, you probably saw or heard a little bit about this shooting that happened in Sacramento. It happened late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, downtown Sacramento, right by the the state capitol in a a district, uh, kind of like a bar district. Think Water Street. Think State Street in Madison. Think Water Street in Milwaukee. And, you know, when when this was first discussed, it was billed as another one of these, like, kind of mass shootings. And it was like, okay, do you have these gunmen that just indiscriminately open fire? Well, now it's apparently something different. What it turns out is at least the operating theory that police have is that this was, this was a shootout among rival gangs. 
And, and what happened is you had some gang members who, who roll up, and this happens right at bar time. Again, think Water Street, think State Street. You know, bars are letting out. Lots of people are coming out. And I think the, the thinking, the theory is that these are like these are like gangsters who have decided that they're going to get into a shooting war with rivals. And it just so happens to be at bar time on a Saturday night, Sunday morning, in a busy area in downtown Sacramento in this case. And as a result, you have six people dead. You have dozens of people are wounded. You have fire from um, weapons that had been turned into automatic weapons, etc. But it, it wasn't one of these random shootings. It was, hey, we're, we're going to get into a gun battle, and this is the location we, we have. Well, it's now also coming out that this was something that was completely and totally preventable, just like if John Chisholm and the court system had done what they were supposed to do with dealing with Daryl Brooks, keeping him in prison so he wouldn't be in a position to, I don't know, drive through all those people who were marching at the Waukesha Christmas Parade, killing six and injuring dozens and dozens. Well, here, here's the same sort of situation. One of the gangsters who is involved in the shooting, who's now been arrested, he's identified as somebody named <clears throat> Smiley Allen Martin. Um, he has a criminal record stretching back to 2013. In 2018, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison as a result of domestic violence and assault with great bodily injury. So now keep in mind, it gets a 10-year sentence in January of 2018. That's what the sentence is. Well, he came up for parole about a year ago, and to their credit, the district attorney's office that it's secured the 10-year sentence for this guy, says, look, you know, he, he's, this, is, this is a dangerous career criminal. He's got a record, an amazing record that he's accumulated given his age. He's only like in his mid-20s. Given his age and given what he has accumulated, he, he's got a 10-year sentence. There's no way in God's green earth that you should let this guy out on the street. He's got a 10-year sentence. He's only served a couple years of it. And the idiots on the parole board decide to reject the plea that the district attorney's office is making, and they let the guy out on parole after serving only a couple years on a 10-year sentence. So flash forward to last Saturday night, early Sunday morning, here you have Smiley Allen Martin with a couple of his other buddies. Um, accordingly, he's apparently he's, got, he's in possession of a machine gun, and, and by the way, felons aren't allowed to have guns, much less machine guns. Um, and he's one that they believe was also involved in, in this, this shooting. So they had him in jail. They had him under a sentence, which if he had served that sentence, I'm not saying he wouldn't have come out and done something bad because he's a bad, bad guy. But he wouldn't have been able to do it last Saturday night. The public would have been protected for another four, five, six years. But instead, the parole board turns a blind eye to the district attorney, in this case, begging to keep this guy in jail. They turn him loose. Now you've got six people dead. You have dozens of people wounded. My point is, when when is the system and I'm talking about individual, in this case, parole commissioners. Sometimes we can ask questions of judges. Sometimes we can ask questions of prosecutors. Although in this case, the prosecution tried their best to keep this guy behind bars. When are we going to learn that taking dangerous people and 
giving them every benefit of the doubt and releasing them back into the community so they can take their machine guns and gun down a half dozen innocent people on the streets of Sacramento. When are we going to learn that we're not doing any favors? And yet we have a system that continues to be a revolving door even when you finally get these dangerous people and get them behind bars. And every, every law enforcement officer around will tell you that as good as they are at what they do, you don't catch people the first time they've committed a crime. You don't catch people the second time they've committed a crime. In general, by the time you finally catch them, they've done a lot of different stuff. So when you know they're dangerous, when you know they're violent, why a parole commission would release somebody back onto the streets? There's blood on the hands of the people who made that decision. When are we going to learn to stop doing this foolishness? I ask rhetorically. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. I'm I'm sorry, I'm back to where I started leading off the program. Uh, During the course of the day, you will hear uh, former Mayor Tom Barrett commenting on the election of Kevlar Johnson to replace him. And and in what is is one of the I I guess when you're several thousand miles away, you you can do things like this. But there's a word I can't use on the radio to describe it. But what? What nerve? What 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 guts? The Barrett, Barrett. Well, what what advice would you give? Well, you got to get a handle on crime. Well, if, it's like okay, this coming from the guy who had no clue as to what to do with crime and watched violent crime explode over the last three or four years on his watch. But now he's like, well, hey, Cavalier, you 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 better get a handle on crime. Well, he, he's right. There, there's no question about it. I'm just saying it's pretty darn gutsy to say, well, this this is the number one problem when you get completely stuck your head in the sand for three or four years. And now here, it's, it's your problem. Well, it is his problem now. All right. Speaking of crime, if you have a dog and you let your dog run loose, let's say you own a Doberman or let's say you own a pit bull and you let that pit bull run loose and the pit bull runs through the neighborhood and attacks some lady who's walking down the street pushing a baby stroller with her kids, and the pit bull attacks the woman and attacks the baby. You will be held liable for that. You might be held civilly liable for, for not keeping control of, of your dog. You, you, and you might, that means you might be sued. You, you might even be charged criminally for not keeping control of, of your dog. Okay. Um, why? Because, well, you, in this case as a pet owner, have a responsibility to keep control of the things that, you know, you're supposed to keep control of, right? All right. Oftentimes, when we start talking about juvenile crime, we we get the argument about, like, where where are the parents? And sometimes we just kind of dismiss that. But, But here's part of the reality of this. You know, if you look at the car thefts in the city of Milwaukee, they estimate that about... They estimate that about 50% of the car thefts are conducted by juveniles, all right? And that, that's kids under the age of 16, conducted by juveniles. And if you go up to, like, minors, you know, people under the age of 18, it's like 60 to 65%. That's where the car thefts are occurring. Got it? 
So you have that. In addition, same sort of thing holds true with the reckless driving and all these things. So you've got a huge problem with juveniles who, by and large, are not held accountable. And at least as a first step, second step, third step, typically they are simply remanded into the custody of their parents where they go out and they commit crimes again and again and again. I was thinking of this with this story from yesterday. Two Wauwatosa police officers shoot and wound a 17-year-old teenager late Tuesday night. Now, the story is that um, apparently stolen car, police find a stolen vehicle about 10.50 at night parked in an alleyway between North 92nd Street and North 91st off of West Congress. All right, so the police see it, stolen car, there's somebody in the car. The driver, who is the only person in the car, this is according to the Wauwatosa police, get out of the vehicle. The police say the 17-year-old, turns out he's 17, they didn't know at the time, was armed with a firearm and did not comply with the officer's commands. Two officers fired their weapons, struck the subject. Um, The officers who shot the 17-year-old, one is somebody with um, eight years' experience, one is somebody with five years' experience. They were not injured. The 17-year-old who was in the stolen car in the alley with the gun, he is expected to survive. The officers provided care. So, okay, so you've got the background of this. I'm listening to the story, and I understand where this is going to go. The fallout is going to be, you're going to have people coming up and saying, well, why didn't the police de-escalate? Why did the police have to shoot this kid? You know, what, what, what's going on here? But at, at the end of the day, before we get to any of that, you've got a 17-year-old in a stolen car with a, a gun who refuses to comply with police demands, right? Well, all right, when I was 17, I, I wouldn't have been out on the streets at 11 o'clock at night on a Tuesday night, which last time I checked was still a school night, you know, in, sitting in a stolen car, you know, with, with a gun, much, much less, you know, escalating it when it when it goes from there. And Part of the reason I wouldn't have been out in that situation is because, well, my my parents wouldn't have let me be in that situation. Now, it might be in this particular case that this is the young man's first time at the rodeo, first time in trouble with the law, never been in front of a juvenile judge before. It could be that case, and it could be that this comes as a complete surprise to the parents who would have no idea that their little darling would be in a stolen car with a gun getting in a confrontation with police officers. Could be. But, you know, the, the odds are it's probably something different than that because most of the juveniles that end up in situations like this or fleeing from the cops at high rates of speed or whatever are people who have been through the system on multiple occasions. It's not their first time at the rodeo. That, that's just the reality. You don't wake up one day and say, oh, today's the day I'm going to go out and get in a stolen car and grab my gun and you know, kind of sit in an alley and get into a confrontation with police. Could be. Could be possible. Maybe that's what happened here, but it is unlikely. And it's not what happens in the overwhelming majority of situations. You have juveniles who have been through the system, including on multiple occasions, who are out on the streets running wild, literally, and not held accountable. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We always ask the question, where, where are the parents? I guess my question is, Is it time to start holding parents accountable for the criminal behavior of the children, in air quotations, that that are supposed to be within their, their care? 
and particularly if you have situations where you you know your kid is a criminal. How do you know your kid is a criminal? Well, your kid has been through the juvenile justice system on multiple uh, occasions, and nothing's really happened to him. But now there he is again in the stolen car or leading the police on a high-speed chase or getting into a shootout with the cops somewhere. Is it time? In addition to trying to hold the young person accountable, is it time to start looking at ways that you can hold the parents, hold the adults who are responsible for these juvenile delinquents, hold them accountable as well? Certainly civilly accountable. Maybe your kid goes out and steals a car. Maybe, you know, you should be subject to a lawsuit from the people whose car was stolen. So maybe you should have to make good on that. Or maybe even that next step. Maybe if you're not taking care of your kids and you're not watching your kids, all right, maybe there needs to be some liability for you. Aren't you responsible or shouldn't you be responsible for what people in your charge do? And again, I understand kids are different than dogs, but if you've got a Doberman, if you've got a pit bull and you let that pit bull run wild and attack people, you're going to be held accountable. If you've got an out-of-control juvenile delinquent who's out there stealing cars assaulting people, robbing people, isn't it reasonable to say that you bear some responsibility for that unless you're actively involved in calling the cops and saying, oh, my kid's at it again. You know, he's supposed to be here. I set an eight o'clock curfew. He's out on the streets with his no good buddies, and I know nothing good's going to come of this. Don't we need to start holding parents more responsible? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Yeah, what got me started on this was that the story from last night, if you're just tuning in, around 11 o'clock at night, Wauwatosa police find this, this stolen car in an alley around 91st Street. And there's a one passenger in, in the stolen car. Uh, they order him out. He's got a gun. Uh, we, we don't have all the details, but they say he refuses to comply with orders and two officers shoot shoot him. Turns out to be a 17-year-old kid. He's going to survive. And I, I know the inquiry is going to be, why did you shoot and all these type of things? But I, I had a more fundamental question, which is, you, it's, it's a Tuesday night. It's a school night. I know this is a silly thing to say. What what, what are you doing in an alley in a stolen car with a, with a, with a gun? I mean, seriously. <laughs> and this is, of course, the, the thing that happens whenever we hear these stories. It's 15-year-olds and 14-year-olds and 13-year-olds out carjacking and, and fleeing from the cop and all this stuff. And and I think it is kind of fair to maybe say, where are the parents in this? And, and don't we need to start saying, okay, look, parents, you've got to start being held in some fashion responsible for just letting your kids run wild in the street, because obviously we're not doing enough when we just try to discipline the kid. Let's start with uh, Donna. Donna, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? Um, I hundred percent agree with you. Back in the old cliche, back in the day, um, being sixty some years of age, there was no way in heck I was more afraid of going home, knowing that there was going to be fallout from the police on my family, on my parents. That's what I feared most. Oh, yeah. For the fact that they, the repercussion was not going to be as hard on me as what it was going to be on them. 
Right, and your then mom, mom and dad, all, 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 right, all, all mom, all mom and dad's friends and the neighbors, everybody would know that that their kid was out doing what their their kid had done. And I don't know about you, Donna, but also it's one thing for what the police will do or the school administrators will do. I, I was raised by a great set of parents, and I wouldn't want to disappoint them, but they would not be happy. Oh no! Oh no! 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 Your your status in the neighborhood changed big time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it, and it, and it wasn't so much that, yeah, you 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 weren't labeled a bad kid, but although that's changed, um, it was what was going to come down on the parents, and then from there, it was what was then going to come down on me. But yeah. it was the parents that caught it first. Absolutely, no. Th- thanks for calling. And see, I, I'm I'm just I'm all about the, this accountability, and I will tell you, I, I'm starting to have a change of mind about this because at one point in time I kept thinking well it's not it's not fair to hold the parents accountable for you know the misbehavior of of their their kids you you, you can't hold them accountable but at some point in time you wonder you know, why why not and don't you have a responsibility I don't know if you've got a 15-year-old kid that's out running the streets at 2 o'clock in, in the morning and running around with their low-life friends. Don't you as a parent have an obligation to exercise your parental control and, and rein them in? Or do we simply say, no, you can just throw up your hands and let the 15-year-old run wild in the streets. And, you know, when he's running around with his gang-banging buddies and they've got guns and they're carjacking people, well, there, there's just nothing that we can do. I guess I just refuse to accept that as as the default position. All right, let's talk to Chris in New Berlin. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hey there, Jay. I have to completely disagree with you on this one. There are a lot of parents out there that may do nothing, but if you're a concerned parent and you're held liable, if you have a dog, you can lock it in the house. You can't do that child. You can give it away to the local kennel. You can't do that child. You can put the dog do that with a child. And this is a kid 15 years old with a gun. You think the parents have any control over them? They might be afraid of the kid, and they have no way of, quote, reining them in. You can try what you want to, but holding a parent responsible, if they might just be afraid, afraid of the kid, and you said the kid's passed curfew, call the police, yeah. and my kid didn't make curfew, go do something, they're overstretched as it is. There's no way they can handle it. There no. is no... Well, 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 no, no, no. How, how, how about no? How, how about this? Okay, my 15-year-old kid bolted out of the house. I, I think he's running around with some of his gang-banging buddies. I believe they've got guns. Last time they were out, I think they were. Um, I think that they were, were stealing cars, and I believe that that's what they're going to do again. Do you think it's too much to expect a parent to make that phone call, or do they just say, "Okay, I can't control them. Wash my hands of it." Okay. Okay, they can make that call, but what is the police reaction? Where are they? Have they stolen a car? Do you have any evidence? No, no, no. God, folks, we're busy as it is. We can't go on a what if. Well, that's we're a busy chasing down the people that actually are right now. Okay, well, I mean, what do the police do? Well, that's a different story. Now, thanks for calling, Chris. That that's that's a different story. You know what what the police do, but at least in that point, in my perspective, is you have the parents that are trying to do something. They know their kid is a ticking time bomb, whatever phrase you want to use, and they're at least saying, "All right, look, we we've got some real concerns. My kid just got into a van. I think it's stolen." Um, I haven't, you know, he's 15 years old. He hasn't been in school for three days. He's running around with some of his low-life buddies. This is where I last saw him driving around in a stolen van, at least in that point in time. Right, in that case, then then you as a parent have done what I, I think you, you have to do. I also just don't 
accept, I guess, the basic premise that, that parents are potted plants, that parents don't have any control at all over the kids. Now, it might be that you've got some parents who don't want to exercise any control over the kids. I mean, I, and that's, that's probably true because I'm, I'm sure you've got a generation of parents that are out there who could care less about what the kids are doing because they've got their own stuff that's going on there. And in that particular case where you don't even try – yeah, I, I've got no sympathy. And, and yes, I understand that, that criminal kids are different than you know animals, and there's all sorts of different things you can do. But this idea that you can just wash your hands of it, yeah, I've, I haven't seen the uh, sick 15-year-old. He hasn't been in school for four or five weeks. And yeah, I, I understand. He comes in once in a while, and I give him a change of clothes, and I feed him a little bit, and then he goes out back on the streets, and he reeks of marijuana. And I know he's got all this cash, so don't know where that's exactly coming from. And But I I don't. I don't want to upset little Johnny, so I don't ask those questions. I, I, I just don't think you can take this complete and total hands-off approach to this. And I do think if we were more aggressive, especially when the parents have either done nothing or the parents should know that the kid is involved in no good, and, and that's different from gee, we had no, absolutely no idea. We thought the kid was at the library, you know, <laughs> but. But in most of those cases, let, let's face it, the, the library is not open at 2 o'clock in, in the morning. It, it's just not. And I guess that's a dodge that's out there. I think it's perfectly reasonable to start looking at ways to try to hold the mom and dad accountable for at least at least to make them work with officials. And, Chris, I appreciate what you're saying. Cops are busy, and you, know, you get the call from the parents saying, well, I, I think Johnny's in this stolen van with three of his low-life buddies, and I think they've got a gun. Well, I don't know. You, you report that, and maybe the dispatcher is going to say, huh, we've got this tip to be on the lookout for this white van with this license plate because we've got some juveniles, and at least one of the parents think they might be up to no good. You, you don't know. Might might be something that helps helps get these kids off the street before they end up sit in a stolen car with a gun in an alley, getting into a showdown with police officers. Well, I've got some bad news for some of you. Well, actually, you probably won't even notice. The headline is, Maintenance Issues Reduce the Hops Schedule. Second time this year, the streetcar system will operate with a reduced schedule. Milwaukee streetcar system will be operating on a reduced schedule starting today because of maintenance issues with two of the vehicles and the equipment used to service them. Two of the HOPS 5 vehicles currently need routine ma- wheel maintenance, but some of the equipment needed to perform that work is out of service. According to a spokesperson, vehicle jacks used to lift the 4010 streetcars are not working. <laughs> okay, so okay, so some some of the stuff isn't working right needs to be maintained and the stuff that maintains it doesn't work, so they're going to have to run fewer streetcars. Here's the bottom line of all this. If you want to talk about a problem, looking for a solution, this would be it because nobody is going to notice that there's fewer uh, versions of the hop running because nobody rides this thing anyways. The best thing to do would be to take all five of them off the market and not worry about this. Now, with Cavalier Johnson becoming the mayor, not sure that that's going to happen, but um, if you're waiting for that hop, you might have to wait just a little bit longer. But the good news is not too many people wait for it. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Okay, April 18th, which is a week from Monday, the day after Easter, that is the day when your taxes are due. 
unless you have an extension, we'll get into that in just a minute, you you, you have to file your, your taxes. And if you don't file your taxes, um, your tax returns, under certain situations, you can you know be in a bit of trouble. It could cost you a bunch of money. There are two types of people in this world. There are the type of people, and, and I'm in this first category, there are the type of people who get their taxes done or do their taxes as soon as they possibly can so they they know what their tax situation looks like. And and for me, um, I, I used to do my own taxes, and now I, I have an accountant, and Laura's great at doing the things. But, but as soon as I get all the information I need, which is typically by the end of January, I've got all the stuff assembled. I, I've got it organized like I do. I, I ship it off, and, and then I, you know she's really good about it. And then about a week or so later, I, I get the, the thing saying, okay, this is what your taxes look like. Now, I, I do it. Because, see, my goal is I, I always – I don't want to get big refunds because a big refund just means that you've given the government an, an, uh, an interest-free loan. But at the same time, I, I don't want to owe a bunch of money. So my goal is always to get it just about as close to zero as I possibly can. And this year I did a pretty good job with the federal tax returns, state tax returns. I, I actually – I don't know what I, I – I know what I did. But I ended up getting a pretty decent refund. But by the way, I said getting a pretty decent refund because I have that. You know, we got all the stuff done, submitted it. Um, the little bit of money I'd coming back for the federal taxes, I just applied to next year. And um, earlier, last late last week, I think I got a nice check from the State Department of Revenue, giving me the the money that I had overpaid. Now I'm kicking myself a little bit because. Again, it was an interest-free loan to the state of Wisconsin. But nevertheless, it, my, my taxes are filed. It's done. I do not have to worry about it. And that's pretty much the way I handle stuff every year. I have a couple friends, you know who you are, who I don't even know that they've started thinking about their taxes now. Maybe they've started getting some of the stuff together, but but there will there will be a rush from, I would say, well, maybe Good Friday through Easter Sunday to try to get you know th- their tax stuff done. And inevitably, it's probably going to end up in people filing a request for an extension. Now, the way it, it works is um, if you owe money, if the IRS owes you money, there's no penalty for being late with your, your taxes. On the other hand, if you owe the IRS money, filing a, a tax return late is, is a big problem because what happens is you, you owe interest on the money and you also owe a 5% penalty for, for being late with your return. That's 5% of your tax bill per month or partial month that your return is late up to 25% in total, which is why if you owe money, you, you really – you have to – you, you got to make sure you file a request for an extension in a timely fashion because while that doesn't stop you from owing the money and it doesn't stop you from owing interest on the money, it does toll that, that 5% penalty on top of it. But there's a lot of people that just take the, these risks. And it's one of these things, maybe like men are from Mars, women are from Venus, that I, I legitimately don't understand. I mean, I see, I, you know you're going to have to do it. It, it is it is inevitable. You are going to have to do it. Now, I understand that if you owe the IRS money or you owe the State Department of Revenue money, you might want to hold off on filing as late as possible because you, you don't want to give them any money any sooner than you have to. Okay? So I, I get – but even then – 
don't you want to know how much you're going to owe? Don't you want to know if it's going to be 500 bucks or 1000 bucks or 50 bucks or, or whatever? And alternatively, if you're getting money back from the government, either the feds or the state, don't you want that money back as soon as possible? Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We want to have a conversation about taxes. Which type of person are you? Are you like Jeff here, who as soon as you can get the, the taxes done, you want to get the taxes done? And again, I, that, that doesn't mean that you always submit them, because I understand if you owe money, you might want to wait to the last possible minute to turn it in. But still, you, you want to know where you are. So that that's me. I got to know as soon as possible. I don't like it hanging over my head. Flip side is I know there's a lot of people who are listening to me right now, and, and maybe you, you haven't even thought about doing your taxes. And, oh, gosh, that's right. I, I got to submit them a week from Monday. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you a tax procrastinator? And if so, why? To me, life just has all these different stresses. I don't want to be stressed out about this two days before the deadline, worrying about what I'm going to do on Easter, where I'm going to go on Good Friday, and also having to figure out how I'm going to assemble the records to get my taxes done. 855-616-1620. But I know some of you are going to be in exactly that situation. Why or why not? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I've been reading all these stories about taxes, and if, for those of you who might not know, um, you, you have an obligation, legal obligation, to file your tax returns by a week from Monday. That would be the day after Easter, the 18th. If you don't and you owe money, well, you know, the, the meter starts running. And if you don't request an extension, the meter starts running on what you owe, plus there's a 5% kicker on top of it. It gets to be an expensive proposition. But the, the bigger thing is, I, I know people who procrastinate. I know people who haven't really seriously looked at doing their taxes yet and probably won't, I don't know, till maybe maybe Easter Sunday. I just don't understand that. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Holly and Grafton. Holly, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I was telling your screener that, yeah, it's, I would love to get my taxes done right away, um, but the Schedule Ks don't come out until the middle of March, and so then when you get those K-1s, right. yeah, Schedule K-1s to your accountant, you know, then you've got to wait the three, four weeks. So, yeah, it's like, all right, do I need to put this money aside? Because probably going to owe taxes at the end of the year. Right. Or if I'm getting money back, I'm like, you, give me my money. Why are you earning interest on my money? Yeah. Well, like I can say I, I'm kicking myself because normally I'm pretty good. And this year I, I know exactly what I did. So, I, I mean, I got a nice size refund from the state. But, but again, it's kind of like I, I, I would have rather had that money <laughs> with that. So, yeah, in your case, you've you got a kind of right, unique situation. Right. You're self-employed with a K-1 and you're just waiting to get that K-1. Yeah. yeah. If, if it wasn't for yeah. that, would you be filing like I am in, in early February? Oh, for sure. I mean, I had the minute everything else comes in at the end of January, middle of February, it's scanned in, downloaded to my accountant, just sitting there waiting for that one piece. Yeah, yeah. No, th- right. Exactly. Thanks for going. And that always that always happens. Matter of fact, that and not this year, but last year that happened with me. I had I had everything in order. 
and I, I sent it all off to the accountant, and I, there was there was one thing that I was waiting for, and we couldn't ultimately file until we ended up getting that. But but I just it's another one of these deals where I just want stuff off my plate. I mean, I don't know about you, but there's you know I. I got a lot of stuff going on. You probably do, too. You're probably busier than I am. And I, I've got this, like, mental checklist of things, and I don't like this stuff hanging over my head. And and inevitably, taxes are, are one of those things that are, that are hanging over your head in, in a big way. And I just feel this collective sense of relief when you package that whole thing off and, and you get it done. I also, again— like to know where where I end up standing because for a variety of reasons we you know my tax situation is a little bit different every year and we have to pay estimated taxes and things but stuff happens during the year that changes it a little bit so I always have a a rough idea it's not I'm not completely blindsided but you know I I, I want to know where it is that I stand but more importantly I just I don't like this all hanging over my head Jeff I procrastinate in getting taxes done I have some forms mailed at their deadline so I want to make sure I get all these prior and don't have to have the taxes alter. I also find myself busy this time of year. Enrollment for children into school next year, Girl Scout cookie season, etc. Uh, no, that's it. Jeff, I'm with you because you know what the bottom line is? I know it's Girl Scout cookie season, but you know, I, if, if I'm going to irritate the people selling the Thin Mints or I'm going to irritate the IRS, take some advice from a free legal advice from a recovering federal prosecutor. The IRS is nothing that you want to mess around with. Jeff, I'm with you. I want to know what my tax obligation is so I can plan my cash flow. I can file anytime, even if I owe money. I just need to pay my tax due by April 18th. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, that's the issue. Um, Jeff, I'm a tax preparer for a major income tax service. We are expecting a huge surge in clients because many, many, many Americans haven't filed yet. Oh, yeah, I I, I have I have no doubt about that. And, and I'm, I'm sure that there are going to be people standing there with a wad of paperwork in line outside H&R Block or whatever else these things are, places are saying, please, please help me. Jeff, I'm a strange combination of both a proactive and a procrastinator. I'm retired and carefully manage all my investments and constantly tweak withholding and estimated payments so that I know throughout the year where I stand. But then I often don't file until a week or two from the deadline and either pay a small amount with it or request a small refund to be carried over for next year. Well, and, and again, that's you're right. That's that's that combination. I don't want to work that hard. I mean, I want to I want to kind of set up a what I try to do is with the accountant set up a plan at the beginning of the year. Okay, this is I mean, I know what my income is going to roughly look like for the balance of the year and I know what uh, you know, I, I have a I'm not expecting, you know, some huge windfall. I know what the income's going to be. I have a rough idea of what the withdrawals are going to be. And, you know, we work out a couple different scenarios that, well, if you if you tap this account or something, this is how much you should pay in taxes. I just, I just don't want to be surprised by this entire uh, thing. Um, Jeff, I'm with you. I want to know what my obligation is. Um, Jeff, now I assume... Every once in a while, we, we get these texts, and I assume people are just kidding. But I want to share them with you anyways because it, it gives you an idea of some of our listeners' sense of humor or, or not. Jeff, I roll the dice and don't pay. The IRS is massively underfunded, understaffed, and using absolute obsolete mainframe computers not upgraded since the 1960s. I don't think they'll catch me. They'll barely catch anyone. So, all right. 
my, my response to that is, in my previous career as an attorney, we, we, had, we had a saying, today's fools are tomorrow's clients. <laughs> so that, that, that the best I could tell you is if, if you're in that category that thinks the IRS isn't going to catch me, well, go, go with God. <laughs> that, that, that's all right, fine. But, but just understand, um, having worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office, for example, and, and seen, seen some of the powers the IRS has, you, you know, there's some, there's some entities in the world, and it might be true that the IRS is understaffed and maybe they're using obsolete computers and stuff, but when they latch on to you, trust me, they are like dogs with a bone, and you do not want to be latched onto by the IRS. Trust me on this one, because they have, and, and I say this collectively, no sense of humor at all. <laughs> when it comes to this stuff. And when you find that your bank accounts are being attached and all this stuff and your paychecks are being garnished and things like that, just just trust me on this particular one that you, you at least, I don't know if it's one of those deals where you want to dare them to see what they're going to do. My advice would be, I, I think that there might be other things that you could do that would be a little bit more productive. But again, if that's if that's the risk that you want to want to take, um, fine. It's not kind of the risk that I want to take. Taxes have to be filed unless you request an extension by April 18th. Word to the wise. So getting a huge reaction to one of our listeners who suggested, I hope tongue-in-cheek, that he just doesn't bother filing those tax returns because he doesn't think the IRS is going to catch him. Um, Jeff, I forgot to add a 1099-INT form from my 20, from 2017, and I just got the audit from the state two weeks ago. I think their computers are pretty up-to-date. Our friend Jeff in Fox Point says, hey, not paying the IRS just sounds like, hey, hold my beer and watch this. There is an element of hold my beer and watch this. I'll tell you one of my, my IRS stories. Um, okay, so this this is, it's in, the, it's in the last 10 years, but not within the last six. So I pay estimated taxes and stuff. So one day I, I filed my taxes. This is back when I was doing them myself. And so I get this, I get this letter from the IRS and it's got a check in it for like five grand. I mean, something like that. And I'm going, huh. And, and, and I, I know that I did not make a $5,000 mistake. I, I just, you know, Janie, Janie Matt, you know, I mean, I, I've done my, I know that th- this, I'm, I'm glad to have this check, but I know that I did not do make this mistake. Sure. So I then, now I understand that some people would probably just pocket the check and then it's kind of go on, but that's not Jeff. I sit there, it was a Friday night, I remember this, we, we ended up having to cancel our dinner reservations because then I go back to our taxes and I'm looking to see where this could come from. And so finally I, I find it and it turned out my late wife was self-employed and there's an added self-employment tax or something and they the IRS had I, I had reported her as self-employed, and they had treated her as not. And so the bottom line is they, they said we didn't owe as much tax, and so they give me this money back. Well, that's wrong. So I then, okay, I know it's wrong. I notify the IRS that they're, they're wrong. I said, you've given me too much money back, and this is, this is where you made the mistake, line 30, whatever it is. This, this is it. My number was right. Your number is wrong. So I get this note back. I said, I've got the check. Tell me what you want to do with it. Get the note back saying, thank you for your note. You are now being audited. They audited. They audited me when I told them 
So this, and so then I got to submit all this other information, and I'm sitting there thinking, really, no good deed goes unpunished. You could have just cashed the check. <laughs> well, no, because three years later they would have found me and come back true. with me and with then, the interest and then and audited, stuff. audited well, your right. last ten but, years. But it is. I, I sent the. I, and they're, they're, they audit me and they're asking for all this other information and stuff. And then seven months later, I get this note saying, "Yeah, um, yeah, we, we've audited and and yes, the initial tax return you filed was great, and here you can send the check in or whatever." And it's like. <laughs> So I, I figure I, I've got at least that karma there. If I do ever make a legitimate mistake, I'm hoping to point to that and say, remember the time that you know you sent me the five grand check and uh, what can you do? Boy, stock market all over the map today. I mean, it's been down, but just a while ago, the Dow was down almost like 400 points. Now it's rebounding. It's down 163 points, which is still down, but not down anywhere near as much as it was. NASDAQ down big, but not as much as it was. I'm not exactly sure what's going on. I think the Federal Reserve is giving some testimony trying to figure out uh, what what they're going to do with inflation, which is an issue that we're going to be talking about in the next half hour of the program. I want to take your temperature on something. But before that, I call it gas price amnesia. And it's something that a number of politicians have. Let me kind of emphasize where I come from on this. I, and I, I said this yesterday when we talked about it in kind of a different context. I, I appreciate that at some point in time, we're going to move towards more renewable sources of energy. Okay, at some point in time, that, that's great. And there will be a point in time, probably after I'm long gone, where everybody's driving electric cars be, because it's going to be feasible. We'll, we'll have the technology to produce the batteries. The batteries will be able to be recharged quickly. The batteries will have a, enough length on them so that you can do more than just kind of spin around the surrounding area. We'll have charging stations that will be readily available to people, and and, and we'll have fast charging things so that if you're driving from Milwaukee to Chattanooga, Tennessee, for example, and you've got to stop not only do you need to find a charging station, but right now you stop, you fill up your tank with gas, you go to the bathroom, you get a cup of coffee, you're gone in five minutes. You know, you're going to need to have something that can do something similar to that. And, and I, I have no doubt that we'll have the technology that does that maybe at some point in time, but we're not close to that now. That That's just not the reality. The power grid cannot support doing away with natural gas furnaces. It, it just, it can't. It just, it cannot do that. So until we are at a point, and again, maybe it'll be five years from now, maybe it'll be 10 years from now, maybe it'll be 20 years from now, until we reach that point, we need to continue to have fossil fuels. That's just the reality. And right now, gasoline, even at four bucks a gallon, is still relatively cheap compared to the cost of making batteries and the cost of electric cars and all the other things. But gasoline doesn't need to be $4 a gallon. The problem is that we have, and the Biden administration is a prime example of this, has been pressuring oil companies to cut back their production. So today what's going on in Congress is there's this hearing and they've whistled in all these oil company executives and they're berating them for, well, you're, are you price gouging? You know, gasoline is up to four bucks a, a gallon. You know, that, that must be because you're price gouging. And a number of the oil company executives are saying, wait a second, wait, wait a second. Remember when we were here last fall 
And a lot of you who are now accusing us of price gouging, you were the ones who were beating us up because we hadn't reduced our oil production. Real interesting column in the Wall Street editorial in the Wall Street Journal about how, you know, when you had all the, these U.S. U.S. gas companies that were in, they were getting beaten up, um, like Exxon, Mobil, were getting beaten up because they were still producing oil. And they weren't cutting back like some people in Europe were. And a couple of the politicians are saying, are you going to commit to matching your European counterparts to reducing the production of oil? And then they got unhappy when, when these people said that they wouldn't do it. Well, so now, now these same executives are being accused of, of price gouging when they were being told to cut back production to begin with. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, here, here is the bottom line. We need to do everything we can, in my opinion, like starting tomorrow, to increase our production of domestic oil. And we, we, need, we need to start drilling. We need to, if it means building pipelines like the a continuation of Keystone, to bring oil in from Canada, uh, more oil in from Canada, we, we need to do that. We need, because here's the bottom line right now, we're not ready to go renewable. We're just not. And one of the interesting things is you'd think that we should be supporting more U.S. oil and gas production um, because we do it a lot cleaner than some of the other countries around the world, like Venezuela, that have lower environmental standards and much higher emissions. You would think that we should be doing everything we possibly can to encourage domestic oil companies to produce as much oil and gas as they can domestically right now. And you can continue to work on the electric vehicle stuff. I don't have a problem with that. We can try to figure out ways to maximize our solar power and our wind power. But don't we need to increase domestic oil production? And shouldn't that be, at least at this point in time in our history, isn't it time to say, look, this has got to be priority number one, because this is, if we're really in a battle with Russia, this is the way we hurt Russia, because Russia, as I've said before, is just a giant gas station. And to the extent that we can help the world reduce its dependence on Russian oil, okay, we— we become stronger, Russia becomes weaker, and we can do it without expecting Americans to have to pay 4 or $5 a gallon. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I say drill, baby, drill. We should be doing fr- – I, look, I don't have a problem with taking oil out of the strategic reserve, but that's a short-term, like one-time sort of answer. We need to be increasing our production, and we need to be doing it in a big way, right? We discuss in just a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There will be a point where, you know, we, we, we're able to go to renewable energy. I, I don't know five years from now, ten years from now, twenty years from now. I don't know, but we're not there now. Right now, what we need to be doing is everything we possibly can to increase our domestic oil production so we become energy sufficient, so we can help the rest of the world shut off its dependence on, for example, Russian oil. And, and by the way, when, when we do it, 
when we drill, for example, we're a lot more environmentally friendly than, say, when they do it down in Venezuela. Jeff, we need to ramp, here's a text, we need to ramp up our production huge. Um, We need to be much closer to energy self-sufficiency as we were a few years ago. The U.S. drills oil at a more climate-friendly way than any other country in the world. It only makes sense that if we drill for our own fuel rather than have countries like Venezuela who do not abide by climate concerns drill for additional oil for us. Yeah, pretty seems pretty much straightforward to me. Let's start with Sam in Illinois. Sam, good afternoon. Hey, how you doing today, Jeff? Good. What do you think? Two things. Two things in Illinois that, as far as I'm concerned, don't make any room for an electric car. And we'll probably run out of electricity before we even get close to putting electric cars on the road. For many years now, they've had a volunteer shutdown program here where like in the summertime if you're a big user of electricity Mm -hmm. you're running a manufacturing type operation i'm the utility you're the man i could call you up and say hey jeff you know you could you shut down at lunchtime and maybe run the afternoon right send all your employees home and you know okay we're up on production whatever we'll do it and at the end of the year we'll send you a rebate check just to kind of sweeten the deal up for you okay because they're they're looking for power in the chicagoland area They've been going around doing all these LED lighting uh, upgrades. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are just scrambling around looking for juice here. So, you know, where is the electric car going to come in that scenario? I don't know. They can, they can barely make it through the summer here. Mm-hmm. Then you have Governor Pritzker just signed on with this deal here where they're looking to get rid of these coal plants right. and Byron Nuclear, possibly Dresden. I don't really know if that's going to go through or not, but I've heard a lot of different rumors about it. And there was two groups in on that meeting. The first group was the environmental lobby. The second group was the unions, the electrical worker unions. Pritzker took all his P's and Q's from that, those two groups. All the business groups were cut out of the, the discussions, right. meaning not one business guy had a seat at the table to say, hey, you know, this is what we're using every year. You can't cut us off. Right. So right. that's what's going on here in Illinois, and tell me where you're going to get an electric car in that environment. Well, I would love to know. No, thank, thanks for call, Sam. And, of course, it, it's not just the, the grid for the electric cars. It's, all right, where, where are you going to have the increased electricity that's going to, all right, if, if, we're going to, if we're going to do away with natural gas, and, like, you know, you now have some communities in California where new homes can't have natural gas hookups. Okay, so we're going to go with electric for that. Well, where is this going to come from? And, and again, I, when we've talked about this before, I, I, I'm a big advocate of nuclear. I mean, I, I think if, you, if we want to be realistic about this, you, you're going to have to turn to nuclear power. Well, we can't have nuclear power. Didn't you see the, don't you remember that old Jane Fonda movie, The China Syndrome? Well, it, it was a movie from decades and decades ago. But the reality is it's got to come from somewhere. And I, I, look, I don't, I don't claim to be an engineer. I, I, just, I, I know I get this, this reputation of being like anti-electric car. I, at some point in time, that that's fine. I have no interest in an electric car right now because to me an electric car is simply not practical. I have friends who have electric cars. I have friends who have Priuses and they and they and, and they, they love them, but they don't use the Priuses uh they, they use them as kind of okay, around town 
sort of situations, and, and, and that, that's fine. But for like a, a daily driver, for a, a, something that you're going to take on a, on a 500-mile road trip or a 1,400-mile road trip, it, it's just it's not practical now. Now, maybe it will be at some point in time in the future, but we're not there yet. So right now, today, you know, early April of 2022, we need to be doing everything we can to increase production. Jeff, we need to increase oil and natural gas production right now. The best technology will come forth, even if it's electric, when it is not forced upon us. Right now, we are having very poor electric technology forced upon us because that's what the government wants, not what private industry has yet developed. Yeah, that's kind of how I I look at this. Daryl in Milwaukee. Daryl, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Yeah, I I agree with your position. Uh, We definitely should uh, ramp up domestic oil production. We should get it back, revive it. Uh, You know, it'll just just create greater independency. Uh, You know, and it'll create jobs like it did before. Uh, It'll affect, positively affect gas prices. And you know what? Others will be happier, our allies included, and even our non-allies. Then we can draw, we're talking about sanctions. I mean, that's a sanction to Russia in and of itself to, to draw money away from them and stop indirectly funding their war against, you know, you know their war. Yeah. I, well, it, exactly. It, it, the thanks for call. You're, it, it, for all those, you know, different reasons, I think that that's the— you know, that, that's the situation that, that's there. You have to be, you have to live in the now. And, and I, I understand, somebody sent me this text saying, well, you know, if, if we do what you're talking about and drill oil, that means that, you know, anybody who anybody that has a child under 10, the planet is going to be extinguished. Oh, get over yourself. I, I mean, seriously, at, at, I understand that, you know, you, you can go into the, go down these, these like Al Gore type of theories and things like that, but we've been hearing this for decades and decades. Now, again, I, I appreciate that, you know, we, you, you want to be concerned about the climate. I am not a global warming denier or things like that. But again, I still live in this real world. And unless we are ready as a world to say, all right, we're, uh, we're all going to agree that we're going to keep our houses at 45 degrees in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the winter, and we're going to keep them at 95 degrees in Florida in the summer, unless we're, we're willing to do that and we're willing to say we're going to pay all this money for electric cars and we're going to recognize that we're not going to be able to go on long road trips or things like that, or we're going to be really limited when we're driving them around Wisconsin in the winter because you've got to run the heaters and that drains the batteries. Until we're willing to do that, until you're willing to get the world to to do that. I mean, come on. We, we need to live in the real world. George in Illinois. George, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I agree with your last couple of uh, guys that gave you their right. ideas, too. But when you said restart the pipeline, there's a side effect that it puts all those people back to work. Yep. Gets the unemployment down, puts more money in the economy. Yep. I yep. don't know what he's thinking that man that I don't want to mention his name, but yeah, <laughs> well, well, he's got to listen to the people. <laughs> well, well, no, and it's not just. I mean, th- no, thanks to culture, just, and it's not just the pipeline. It, it's the it's the people who are working in in the other aspects of domestic oil production, whether it's it's fracking or, or things of of the like. I mean, we we have 
there, there is a crisis right now, and I understand that there's there's people who are upset about global warming, and I, I get it. I understand that. But you, you've got an existential crisis going on with a, a rogue nation that has nuclear capabilities called Russia that is launching wars of aggression, and they're, they're paying for it by by exporting their, their oil. Well, they're not going to stop exporting their, their oil. Doesn't Russia doesn't give a rat's rump what we do. They're, they're not going to stop producing oil. They're, they're not. They're going to continue doing what they do, and we can do all the fancy stuff that we want. But to me, they're still going to be producing stuff. You're still going to have the global warming and all those types of things. So the only thing that I think we can do is correspondingly increase our production, try to hurt Russia, increase, decrease the dependency on Russia oil, Russian oil across the world, lower our collective gas prices, continue working on the technology, figure out how we're going to build the power grid, and then and then just kind of move on. But this idea that, well, you know, we're, we, why aren't you cutting back production? Well, okay, it was a dumb idea to cut back production in the first place, and it's especially a dumb idea to cut back production given where we are in the world now. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff, your argument is short-sighted. Ultimately, we will move to renewables. Renewables, we will have to. Putting the infrastructure money into that to increase oil production is over into renewables is a better investment in our future. No, it's not. It, It will, at some point in time, the technology will develop. The technology is not there. Pointing out correctly, I said Prius. The the two friends I'm thinking about drive tex, Teslas. Prius is a hybrid. Teslas are the all electric cars. So yeah, I'm, uh, Teslas. So let, let's go back there. But yeah, but and and look and, and like I said, one of my buddies he he loves his Tesla and it, it's great. And every once in a while we drive around in it and it's a lot of fun. It, it's it's a fun car. It's got this all these really cool features on it. Absolutely love it. And and he's got a charging port in in he lives in a condo. He's got a charging port, you know, in 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 his condo and stuff. So it's no big problem. But he uses the car as kind of a play toy. And you know, it's something that you know you drive around the the area and stuff like that uh, it would never think of like using that car for heavy duty stuff of you know a couple hundred mile trips or things like that doesn't drive it in Wisconsin in the winter it's just flat out not practical maybe it will be someday maybe these things will be affordable someday maybe they'll be rechargeable but we're not there now and right now what we need to be do doing is increasing domestic oil production and that means drill baby drill back with more in just a couple minutes this is Jeff Wagner Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Jane Matinair, before you you sneak out here, yes. I, I thought we had more time, but then we were talking about our schedules, and we've got early baseball games over the next couple days, and then opening day and stuff, and I, I, I did not want to let you sneak away without talking about this wonderful WTMJ Cares promotion that you're doing. It, it happens a week from today yes. at American Family Field, Halfer Field, yes. which is the Little League stadium that's within the stadium. Tell me all about it. It's a drive through It's going to be super easy, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. If you just text the word CARES, C-A-R-E-S, to 855-616-1620, it will take you right to the link. So 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., they're looking for cat food, dog food, both dry and wet, uh, treats, leashes, 
toys. And what I really think is great about this, Jeff, is that they will accept gently used toys and all kinds of toys. Because I always thought that shelters were very specific about very heavy rubber, right? you, right. you know, the Kongs and, and types of things. But uh, Angela Speed from the Humane Society says they'll take squeaky toys and squishy toys and any kind of toys. And, you know, we lost our, our Berkeley at the yeah. end of uh, last August. And so I have a big basket full of toys downstairs that I'm going to repurpose. And again, make sure that not, they're not completely yeah, you gently de- used, de- right? De- stuffed and de squeaked and all that stuff. Yeah, we had a couple. Um, my dog, Sasha, there's there's two toys. She has a whole arsenal of toys, but she, she likes these balls and the, these soft balls. That, and then she likes these uh, the lambs. That's the thing. <gasps> the squeaky lambs. The squeaky lambs. Yeah, lambies. And, and she'll, she'll just, I mean, we we had to toss out one of the lammies because she'd had it for several months and it was just kind of it had lost the squeak and it kind yes. of you know it, and so they get th- dirty right and don't don't do that but like again gently used gently used would be great and uh, in in talking to Angela the reason why they do this at this time of year for one thing we're going to be heading into kitten season soon where they're going to end up with a whole bunch of kittens and. They want to have enough food on hand to take them through the summer. People start going on vacation. Their priorities change. They're gone. You know what I mean? And and right. so it's it's just a way for them to feed, what is it, like 50,000, some ridiculous number of pounds of food. Um, but also in the course of doing this, I've learned so much about what an incredible history they have here, which started in like... The Humane Society. The Humane Society. That started in 1879 because Captain Pabst was concerned about the treatment of his horses that were delivering beer. Okay. (laughs) Well... Who who knew? Right. Who knew? Right. Um, And also the number of animals that they used to euthanize in the 70s, they were getting in, I think she said, like 35,000 animals a year just in Milwaukee. And so they haven't had, they haven't euthanized a healthy, happy animal in decades because of the spay neuter program that they have in effect now. And they just have done so much good. And if you know what pets do for your life, and I know what pets do for mm-hmm. people's lives, and if you're not ready to commit to adopting, you can always foster. And sometimes you can only foster for a weekend. They right. just somebody has to surrender their pets or they got evicted or something. And and so they're just they're looking for and the foster program has exploded from like three hundred to almost thirty five hundred fosters now. Right. Which helps keep the animals healthier gets them prepared for their forever home, and then allows the shelter itself to bring in new animals as, as is needed. So this is going to be a, a drive-through, an a American drive-through. family field right right outside of the Halfair Field, yep. which is, again, the, the stadium, the little, the little League field, essentially, is in front of that. So all people have to do is just make a point of, of driving through. There, I, I assume, will be people there that will take the stuff out of your car Absolutely. and say thank you to you. And, Absolutely. And you are going to be there for from like 11? From 11 to 4. Okay. So it opens at 7, uh, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., but I'll be out there 11 to 4. I know the first 200 people are going to get a special bobblehead. I believe that everyone who donates is going to get a special Hank the Hank the Dog pin, Sure. And uh, which really helped the Brewers Foundation, which had always done work with Humane Society, but really solidified their relationship when Hank the Dog, that story right. came around what, in 2014. So I'd love to see you out there. Whatever you can bring would be wonderful, even if it's just a couple cans of cat food. That's how that's how we change things. That's how not everyone has five hundred dollars that they can spend on a, on a charity. So whatever you can, 
and we put it all together, and that is what makes a huge difference. And, of course, they're looking for food and, and objects, but I, I asked you this off the air. My guess is if, if somebody wanted to stop off and, and drop off some a check or some coin of the realm, you would take that gladly I as have, well, right? I have a feeling they will accept money. <laughs> if they won't take it, I will take your money, Jeff. <laughs> there you go. Jane Metinair, WTMJ Cares. The event is a week from today, Halfair Field at American Family Field. That is, by the way, the day before the Brewers' home opening day. It's WTMJ Cares. And it's a very, very worthwhile cause. When we come back, there's a controversy about the Burger King Whopper. Stick around. I have a confession to make. I'm not a Burger King guy. I, I'm, I'm just, I, I, I you know, there, there's, there, of all the different kind of burger doodles that there are in the world, you know, you've got the McDonald's and you've got the... You've got Culver's, and you've got Burger King, and you've got all these, these different things. I, Burger King has just never been—I have nothing against Burger King, but it's just—it's never been one of my, my go-to sort of things. And I, I don't want to say I've never had a Whopper in my life, but I, it's probably—it's been a long, long time. So the, the, the initial—the point of this story, you know, I really don't care about it, but it does kind of raise one of these sort of larger issues that are out there. When you watch television— you watch the commercials, and the commercials are designed primarily to do one thing. What would that be? Well, to convince you to go out and buy the product, right? That, that's, that's the idea. So that's why, for example, when it comes to food, there are professionals. There are people who make a living and have a career out of doing what they call – they're called platers. And, and what they do is they will work in the entertainment industry, the commercial industry, and they will, they will plate the food for a commercial advertisement to make it look as appealing as is possible. It, it, there's people who spend their life, believe it or not, doing that, you know, taking the food and doing that, which is why if you're ever watching a commercial and you see something that looks icky and on the commercial – well, you, you don't want any part of it because if it looks icky on the commercial, why do you see it in real life? But but that's that's the nature of the game. They want to they want to make it look as appealing as possible. And I think most of us understand that, right? I mean, it, you know, when you're looking at a commercial, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what it's for. If it's if it's blue jeans, you know, they're going to make sure that the actors or actresses that are wearing those blue jeans, they're going to make sure they, they fit and they look good. I mean, they're they're not gonna, you know they're they're not going to have you if they're trying to sell you a pair of Levi's. They're not going to have the commercial that shows the Levi's being kind of like baggy or or not fitting. That's just not what they do. They want to put the product in the most favorable light possible. All right. Against that backdrop, there is now a class action lawsuit, which is in the process of being filed in down in Florida, but it's in U.S. District Court. It's against Burger King. It alleges that Burger King is misrepresenting the size of its food in its advertisements and that you, as a Burger King customer, are continually being duped into buying a substandard product. Now, this is different than the lawsuits that we've talked about before where you remember there's a lawsuit against Subway saying they say it's a foot long, but what happens is after they, the bread starts out and it's a foot long, you put it in the oven, there's a little bit of shrinkage, so it's only like you know, 11 and a half inches. This isn't this type of lawsuit. They, what the lawsuit says is that the, the Whopper and a couple of their other 
Burger King sandwiches, including their Impossible Burger, whatever that is. Is that the one that doesn't have meat in it? The Big King and the Bake. Why would you go to Burger King and get something that doesn't have meat? I, he asks rhetorically. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm all in favor. If, if you want to eat like a vegetarian diet and stuff, I'm all in favor of that. But you wouldn't think the Burger King drive through would where you'd be. Anyhow, the Whopper, the Impossible Burger, the Big King, and the Bacon Double Cheeseburger are among items. And, and, and what they say is that these items are the same size as they have been for years. So nobody is arguing that this is like that that shrinkflation or anything. Nobody is arguing that Burger King has made them smaller. What they are arguing is the way the commercials are produced makes the sandwiches look larger than they actually are. So people are being deceived when they go to Burger King because, you know, they think that I don't know, the, the Whopper that they get at the drive-thru is going to look exactly like the Whopper they, they get on TV. And even though it might be the same Whopper, the way they say it's filmed makes it look like it's bigger. And as a result, the claim is that you and me, or not really me because like I say, I don't go through Burger King, but we're being defrauded because of the mis, quote-unquote misleading way that the commercials are being filmed. Our number, 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The allegation is that the way the commercials are filmed make the Burger King Whopper appear 35% larger than it actually is. So let's tee this up. And I, matter of fact, I'm sure, I, I doubt that it's just Burger King that does this. My guess is you could make the same argument about Wendy's and about McDonald's and about all sorts of stuff. All right, do you feel that you are defrauded if you go through the Burger King drive through you order the Whopper? It's the same Whopper as it's always been, but it doesn't look as big as it looks on TV. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff, nothing looks as good as it does on TV. Give me a break. The Big Mac isn't big anymore, but when I crave one, it tastes the same. Jeff, I think the people bringing this suit need to get real jobs. I mean, would you want this on your resume? Well, they're, they're, this is a class action case on behalf of all everybody that's purchased Whoppers over the last X number of years who says that you have been deceived. The, class, the lawsuit claims you've been deceived because when you see the Whopper ad on TV, it makes the sandwich look bigger than it is in real life. They don't allege that the sandwich has shrunk. It's just that the way they film it makes you think that you're getting more. Okay, seriously, in the real world. <laughs> Has anybody ever said, oh my gosh, I think I'm getting ripped off because I saw this Burger King ad and the Whopper or the Impossible Burger or whatever, it doesn't look quite the same as it looked in that TV ad. Of course, it never does. Kevin, you're in Kenosha. Kevin, you're on WTMJ. Good. Yeah. I'm sorry, Brian, you're in Kenosha. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Brian. Hey, so, uh, the size of the patties, um, I can promise you, haven't changed in decades. <laughs> um, I actually work at a facility that creates those patties. Really? Um, so the illusion of yeah, uh, the illusion of having a bigger Whopper. I mean, if you've gone to Burger King over the past three years, nothing has changed with the make, style, pattern, nothing. So 
if you're going to Burger King expecting something different because of an ad, well, you're just not paying attention. <laughs> well, well, I- exactly. So, and even the weird thing about this lawsuit is they they acknowledge that there it hasn't. It hasn't shrunk. They acknowledge it's the same thing as it's always been. It's just that the way they're filming it makes it look a little bit bigger. Well, every, every, the camera adds 10 pounds. Isn't that what I always hear, you know? Yeah. What, and, and, what, and I know you've said this before, but what advertisement out there doesn't make whatever product they're trying to advertise or sell what, what what advertisement doesn't make that product look better? Well, well, exactly. No, no. Thanks, thanks for the call. I, I don't I don't know about you, but like oatmeal ads. Okay, I, I think I know there's people that are huge fans about oatmeal. When I end up making oatmeal, it looks kind of lumpy and sort of icky. I mean, I like oatmeal, but it looks lumpy. You, you see these oatmeal ads, and you go, my gosh, this stuff is like I don't know. This is like you know the great soup that's there. Okay, well that that's what they do. They make it look appealing. I just I'm finding it impossible to see that there's any sort of fraud here at all. Um, Jeff, many years ago, I toured an advertising agency that does commercials for a major food producer. It was very revealing what they do in their process to make food look perfect for uh, commercials. As an example, they'll cook 300 hamburger patties and expect each one to inspect each one to determine the perfect one to use for the shoot. Absolutely. Cereal, they will individually inspect every single kernel of cereal to determine which kernels get placed on top of the bowl, and then uh, the fruit on top of the cereal is plastic. Okay, let me just stop there for a second. If you think you've got a job that just is mind-numbingly like boring or whatever, can you imagine being the person that's there responsible for looking at every grain of cereal to determine which ones are going to make it to go in the bowl for the the shoot? I but again, it's just it's kind of what what the world is. Let's talk to um, Michael in Illinois. Michael, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Good afternoon to you, and thanks for having me on. Yes, i I got to say I enjoy your show, and Thank 95 you. or more percent, <laughs> I agree with you. Thank you. Uh, there, I, I, I found out a lot about this. Uh, hamburger is a quarter pounder. That quarter pound hamburger has to be shown as a quarter pounder. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that you can't make your quarter pounder wedge shaped so that the part facing the camera is nice and thick. But if you looked at the other side of the sandwich, it's really thin. Sure. It's got to have the same condiments on it. But those are all camera front, and if you turn it around, there's next to nothing left. <laughs> so it's all a matter of uh, advertising. Uh, advertising is just to make you get it and buy it and enjoy it yep. or, you know, deceive right. you a little bit, but not much. Yeah. And Michael, hey, thanks for calling. I'm not even sure deceive is the right word here because I, I think, look, I, I just I, I can't imagine somebody whose life is so, so... What is the word I am looking for? Just just kind of so pathetic <laughs> that, that you're going to go through the Burger King drive through and you're going to then take the Burger King Whopper out of the package 
and look at it and say, gosh, this just doesn't look quite as appealing as I saw it when I saw it on, on TV last night. Jeff, Arby's is the same. Bun piled high in beautiful folds, and after they get done wrapping it, it's half the size with all the meat squished together in a ball, Pepsi served in a glass with beads of sweat on it. Yeah, that that's the thing. When you get like the, you, you see the sodas that are served, it's always like they're ice cold and, you know, it just, boy, that's on a hot day, this would be absolutely perfect. Bottom line is, it is all advertising, but I I bring this up because you might want to pay attention to it, because if this gets certified as a national class and you, in fact, feel that you have been ripped off by Burger King because the Whopper that you buy looks different than the Whopper that you might have seen in an ad, you might want to sign up for the class action lawsuit. If you do, don't call me because I want no part of it. I must confess that I, I am I am a sports fan and there's lots of sports that I'm interested in. I, I mean, I, I'm a golfer. I'm an avid golfer. I'm not any good, but I'm an avid golfer. And I, I love to watch baseball and football and basketball. And I've lately gotten into soccer. I understand some people roll their eyes, but nevertheless, I, I have. And, um, and and pretty much, well, my wife will say, you know, if, if people ask me, like, what sports do I like? The question will be, well, what sports are on television at the time? And there might be an element of truth to that. One of the sports that I have just never gotten into it was auto racing, and, and I, I understand that people love it, and that that's fine. I'm just it's never, I, I I've never it's never been something that's been on the top of my list. I remember I when I was a kid, like second third grade, I had one of my friends and his his uncle like raced like it was a dirt track racer and stuff and i can remember they, they took us to go see the the race and i mean I, I came back and i remember just being covered with dirt my ears were ringing and stuff like that and i and again i, I appreciate the fact that people love it. it 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 just wasn't for me but there is there is an interest in auto racing there, there's no question about it and there's parts of the country where auto racing is extremely successful and then there's milwaukee uh, I, I got to thinking about this because there was a piece the other day written in the Journal Sentinel about auto racing, and apparently there are there are rumors that are circulating about the Milwaukee Mile, which is the the racetrack at, at State Fair Park. You know, it's like if you go out to the State Fair and you've got the, the there's the grandstands. Well, that's and there's they set up the stage that's in the infield for the performers, and then people sit in folding chairs a lot of times on the track. That's the Milwaukee Mile, and for people. Who, who might not have been around then or I, I remember, you know, there, there was a time like in, in the early 1990s when you, they had, you know, IndyCar racing or what they called Indy, what is now IndyCar racing, but they'd have the IndyCar racing and they'd have it at the Milwaukee Mile and it was incredibly popular. You had some really big sponsors that, that were out there, including um, like, Miller and Marlboro and but but those sponsors aren't around anymore but it used to you know you'd have um, you know you'd have all sorts of successful racing I think they had a regular race somebody's going to correct me on this but I think it was like the week after the Indianapolis race it was you know and and it was it was a big deal the problem is that things come into fashion and they go out of fashion and the, the truth of the matter is that IndyCar is struggling to begin with in a lot of places. But in Milwaukee, they, they've really, you've had a number of different promoters o- over the years which have, have tried to bring car racing back to the Milwaukee Mile. And some of the producer promoters have had deeper pockets than others, and they've tried to do things, and they've tried to be creative, but the truth of the matter is it's, it's just, it's never 
succeeded. So the Journal Sentinel story, um, the, the writer is talking about how apparently there's all these rumblings out there about maybe the Milwaukee Mile returning to the IndyCar schedule as soon as next season. And people are saying, well, if they do that, I'm going to buy tickets, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm going to be there. All that all that is a positive thing. But the the auto racing reporter for the Journal Sentinel is skeptical of that. I, I'm not – I wouldn't even use the word skeptical for me. I just – I don't see it happening. And this doesn't come from the perspective of somebody who really doesn't have much interest in it. I would be all – look, anything that we have that, that brings people in as an attraction – I, I'm all I'm all in favor of. I, I I think that that's great. But you know we've tried auto racing at State Fair Park on multiple occasions in multiple different forms. And the truth of the matter is, over the last twenty twenty five years or more, it just it hasn't succeeded. And I don't know that there's anything going on now in twenty twenty two that would make it any more likely to succeed than in in twenty ten. Part of the other problem is that tastes change, and you you have a lot of auto racing fans who are out at Road America, and and they they just like the experience of Road America better than they like the experience of of going to State Fair Park. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't mean to be a downer on this. I, I really don't. But at the same time, I live in this thing we call the, the real world, and I do understand that there's all this talk going around about, hey, maybe you can have a resurgence of auto racing at State Fair Park, particularly the IndyCars. I, I just don't see it happening. For those of you who are fans, I mean, is it realistic to think it might come back? And if so, what's going to be different now than it's different from five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Here's a text. Jeff, people in Milwaukee just aren't interested in racing. The last big a uh, big deep pocket promoter to try to make it work was Michael Andretti and the Andretti family. Yeah, they, they stopped seven years ago. They had lots of money. I think it's time to rip the track down and put something up there. That's Kyle from Milwaukee. See, that that does raise the, the other question that, that's out there. If we determine, if it's determined that 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 track is no longer viable as a practical matter. Then the question becomes, what do you do with it? How, how do you do? You just like let that space sit there so that you can have okay grandstand shows for the state fair for you know ten days or eleven days or twelve days or whatever it is you know during the year. Or is there a better use for that land than using it as a a deserted racetrack? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. But that that's the follow up question that you get to. I guess the fundamental question is you know could racing in Milwaukee work. Dick and Sean O. Dick, you're on WTMJ. Jeff, my first IndyCar race was at the Mile in 1965. I've attended all of the Indy 500 since 1968 except two. I've competed on the Mile as an amateur, and I've gone to a lot of races there. Uh, It is going to be a struggle to bring IndyCar back. Uh, Stock car racing uh, is is alive and well at the mile. There's going to be two stock big time stock car races uh, just below the uh, NASCAR level this summer at the mile. And SCCA and Midwestern Council of Sports Car Clubs runs at the mile on a regular basis. But to bring the the cost of in, bringing IndyCar back to Milwaukee is going to be expensive. But 
IndyCar wants to come back to Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and a big part of and a big part of making a, a show work is the TV component. That's quite frankly, they they generate probably more money with the TV contract than they do in ticket sales. Although ticket sales are important, so if the TV says we want the mile, we want to run at Milwaukee, they'll be back. The Milwaukee Mile, because of its configuration flat, a mile long, is is it makes for really great racing. Right. And uh, if you remember the emails I sent you, you and Fran have a standing invitation <laughs> to go to Road America with me. Yeah. Well, that, that's an interesting. That's an interesting thing too, Dick. You know, Road America, that that's that is becoming. Popular, from what I understand, I, and I, but I think part of that's just the overall environment, the kind of like the park-like setting and things like that. People like to spend yep. the weekend at, at Road America as opposed Correct. to the the old style track. Yeah. So, thanks for call. I appreciate eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's talk to Hugh, who is calling us from Florida. Hi, Hugh. Good afternoon. Hi. How you doing? Good. See, I I, uh, I grew up across the street from the uh, Milwaukee Mile. And uh, I, I've seen many, many, many races there, and it was such a great thing. And I've got the autographs of so many famous drivers. It, way going way back, it was always the first race after in Indianapolis. They come to Milwaukee, right. and back in the good old days during Fair Week, we'd have a stock car race on the first Sunday, and we'd have a stock car race on Thursday, and then the Indy cars would come in on, on the on the on the last Sunday. So it, it, it's uh, it, and it, now they got the new uh, 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 grandstand and everything there, and or newer grandstand, and it's such a wonderful facility, and I think it would be uh, very popular. I think it would, it would come back strong. Well, why couldn't the last... Okay, so so um, Andretti was here, tried it for years. Michael Andretti tried it for years, and uh, yeah. he, he gave up about seven years ago. I mean, what? I guess what what's changed between, you know, then and now that it would make it viable when it wasn't viable it, to, a, to a deep-pocketed guy with a huge background in the auto racing industry? Boy, that's a, that's a hard one to answer. Okay. I, I, all I know is I always thought I, I always thought that what we need at the Milwaukee Mile with IndyCar, we got to go to a 300 mile race. We never had that much. It was always 200 or 250. We need a 300. We need to get out there and advertise it and stuff and and, and, and keep the ticket prices reasonable so a lot of the people that are, are are a little bit tight living can get out there and enjoy it. And I think it'll come back very strong. Okay. Well, thanks for calling you. I'm not rooting against it. I think. You know, one of the things, and, and you were alluding to it, and our first caller, Dick, was as well, one of the things is, is sponsorships. Because I, you know, I, I think, you know, back back in the heyday of the Milwaukee Mile, as I was saying this earlier, you, you had big sponsors. You had like Miller and you had Marlboro. And, and what they would do is they would pour a ton of money into this, including, you know, providing tickets and things like, like that. I, I don't know that there's those big sponsors out there that are willing to commit that kind of, of dough in 2022 to make something like this works. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, Steve. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Good topic. Nobody's addressed the issue that who owns this property. It's four different entities that are involved there. you got yeah. the state. It's a state park. The DNR wants it. West Dallas wants it. The county wants it. You know, they all got their hands involved with this thing, and that's what's happened to the promoters. They never know who they're dealing with. Yeah. And and I'm a racer. I'm a fan. I agree with everything you've said. Road America has got everything. You know, it it, it can't compete with. Right. So 
the thing, the state, we got too many governments involved with it that all want to take their knock with it. And these promoters don't know how to deal with it. And then they keep changing the rules on them. So I've been going to the mile like all these other guys and stuff. And we give up. We just give up on it because it, there's just too much screwing around with it. The ticket pricing is never a problem, but the racers can't make any money because the promoters can't guarantee anything. Yeah, no, thank you. You're exactly right. And, and by, by the way, when I there, there's a lot of things going on, and I, I we could go back if we wanted to spend another half hour on this and go through like some of the history. And when I say like Michael Andretti, for example, last promoter, you know, couldn't make it work. It, it wasn't. I'm not blaming, you know, their their promotional operation. I think they made some mistakes, but you're exactly right as well. There's there, there's all these people that have like their hands in the pie and the rules kind of change and things. And you do have that competition. Here's a text, Jeff. I just ordered tickets for Road America. I have half a dozen friends coming over from Michigan. Everyone loves the venue. You can spend the entire day there. You can camp out. You can grill. Frankly, I think it's a lot more exciting road racing than cars going around an oval at State Fair Park. So that's the the issue that you have as well. Number of people are also you know both texting and making the comments that um, you'd have to. For, for it really to come back and be successful, you'd have to spend a lot of money kind of retrofitting the, the grounds to change where some of the pits are and things like that. Guess the bottom line of all this, and it's interesting conversation. I, I, I remember, even though I am not an auto racing fan, I mean, I, can, I remember, you know, the, the really big deal. And as a couple of the callers were mentioning, you know, Milwaukee used to have that spot the weekend after, you know, the Memorial Day race, the Indy 500. And it was always a big deal because you, you'd see all these people that were racing, you know, on the Indianapolis 500, and then they'd be in Milwaukee the next week. It was a really a, a very cool thing. But, again, times change. I am skeptical that something like this would work. And I guess ultimately, if you're not going to bring IndyCar back, I know that there's other things that they use the mile for. But at some point in time, I think that's the larger conversation that we need to have. Not today, not necessarily tomorrow, but what is the future of that 100-plus-year-old racetrack? Does it make sense to continue to operate it as a racetrack, or is there a better use for that land? And like I say, that's another conversation. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds for Wisconsin's after afternoon news. Please stick around.